Thank you, Phil. Hey, it's good to be back. It's uh, three months ago I was here, um, and uh, in the meantime, um, my wife and I had the opportunity to catch up with uh, our kids and grandkids and friends, uh, my former church. Um, it was just, uh, just a real delight um, just to be able to do that um, over the past uh, few months, and uh, it's good to be among you again. As Phil mentioned earlier, um, I'm going to be working through um, the book of Revelation with you. Um, I did that a um, number of times already. I'm sure there's an archive somewhere on the website where you can check back on um, some of those messages. And um, I just encourage you to do that. Um, and uh, today we're going to be looking at uh, Revelation chapter 11. Thank you, Iantha, of, for that testimony this morning. It's so good. Um, particularly when we open up God's Word, because we understand that God is real. <laughs> and when He says something, that He actually does it. Um, and that's so important for us also as we look at um, this passage together from Revelation chapter 11. Um, you know, in most stories, uh, you have heroes and villains, uh, good guys and bad guys. Some of you are Star Wars fans. I'm not, but I talk to my grandkids, and they all, I mean, they've watched all the Star Wars series. I, I, I can't get it. But perhaps you've seen the movie like my grandson um, Jack has seen, the movie The Empire Strikes Back. In that uh, movie, uh, Jack tells me there's two characters. There's Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. Here's a father and a son, but there's this great battle going on between good and evil. Darth Vader, you know, tries to lure his son Luke to the dark side and conquer the galaxies. But in the end, Vader dies and Luke becomes a hero. Now, I love hearing the banter of children when we come to worship. And I want to include them a little bit this morning as well. Perhaps those of you children who are here, or maybe you've taken your grandchildren there or your children. You've seen the movie Hercules. In this movie, there's a bad guy called Hades. Hades is evil, and he wants to control the world. But then there's this good guy called Hercules. He has amazing power and courage. And in this movie, he becomes the hero. I mean, that's the stuff of stories, isn't it? You might think of Captain Hook and uh, Peter Pan or Scar and Simba in the movie The Lion King. I mean, they are heroes and villains, good guys and bad guys. And we all know this story, don't we? The story of the Bible, probably one of the most popular stories in the Bible. All the kids know that story. We know that story, the story of David and Goliath. There's good guys and bad guys. You find them in every story. And that's also very true in our story that we're going to look at this morning from Revelation 11. We're going to look at the first, I'm going to read the first 14 verses. And as you listen to this, and you can see the words also on the screen, um, I just want you to think for a moment, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys? Uh, listen to this story um, as I read it to you. Revelation chapter 11. I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. 
And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and destroys their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the skies so that it will not rain during the time that they are prophesying. And they'll have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every tribe, people, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets have tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up to heaven in a cloud, while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the survivors were terrified, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. This is the word of our God. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditations of our heart, may they be pleasing in your sight. And Lord Jesus, you, the Lord of this church, when everything is said and done this morning, may you be praised. And may every single person that is here this morning, young and old alike, may every single one of them be helped. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So notice how this story begins. Just like any good story. John begins to speak. And he's given a measuring stick. And he's told to measure the temple of God and the altar. Now this story borrows language from Ezekiel chapter 40. That's in the Old Testament, one of the prophets. The temple is not Solomon's temple or Herod's temple that was rebuilt, but a heavenly temple, the temple that Ezekiel pictures for us in his prophecy. There too we read about a man who went about measuring the temple with a measuring rod. Now the goal of measuring the temple, you might think, well, what, what he's doing is actually measuring, no, like how, how wide is it, how, how long is it, how, how deep is it, how high is it? That's not what he's measuring. The goal of measurement is to count the number of worshipers there. John is to count the faithful followers of Jesus who would be worshiping God in the heavenly temple. Among them would be the martyrs, that if you go back to Revelation chapter 7, you read about that in Revelation 7, about the great multitude that no one can count. Now John is told, I want you to measure it. Count them. Now John is to count the, or measure the 
number of faithful followers of Jesus. But then he is told, do not measure. He's told, look at verse 2, but exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Now here we see the battle lines being drawn. The battle lines between the inner court and the outer court. The good and the evil. Those who are faithful followers of Jesus and those who will seek to destroy the church. Now that's the story of Revelation 7. And it's a great story. A story of this great battle that is going on between good and evil. The good guys and the bad guys. And the battle will last for 42 months. Now I'm going to get back to that number 42 in just a few moments. Because it's important to understand it. But for now, just remember this. This is a story of a great battle between faithful believers and a world that is hostile against God and bent toward evil. Now you also need to remember that this chapter is part of the section that began with the great trumpets. The trumpet judgments. There's seven of them in total. Seven of them. Now these trumpet judgments describe the unbelievable havoc and devastation that's going to happen on earth in the last days before the second coming of Christ. You can read about the first six judgments and trumpet judgments. They're listed in chapters 8 and 9. And I just invite you to go back to them if you haven't heard the series of messages that I've been speaking on or, or just for your own leisure. Just go back to chapters 8 and 9. You read about those judgments. Now, before the last judgment is going to be sounded and the last trumpet is blasted, there's an interlude. Just like the interludes of chapter 7. And the passage we read from this morning in 11 is part of the interlude that began in chapter 10. And when I was back here, um, you know, back, uh, you know, three months ago, we looked at chapter 10. That was the beginning of the interlude. And we're going to end this morning with the sounding of the seventh and the last trumpet. But first we have this interlude. Now, why do we have interludes? I don't know how many of you um, are going to watch... uh, um, you know, the rugby game tonight. I don't know if you do that, but what do they have in the middle? They have, what do they call that? Pardon? Halftime. Why do you have a halftime? You have an interlude. Why? Because you got all this busyness of the game. It goes on and on and on. It seems if you go to a concert or you go to a child's play at school, I mean, you got all of this busyness happening and then you get this interlude. What do you do in an interlude? Well, you put a few more snags on the Barbie, right? Or um, if you're watching a concert, you might go and, and get yourself some refreshment. You might have to visit the loo. I mean, it's a time to just to get comfortable and maybe to be comforted, maybe just to relax a little bit. I mean, you get all this busyness happening, and now we can just relax for a while. Well, that's what an interlude is, and that's what the interludes are also in the book of Revelation. These interludes are put there in the Bible because in the midst of all of this havoc and all of this devastation and all of this this stuff that's going on in this world, we also need to get back for a while as faithful followers of Jesus and just relax for a moment. Maybe get in a comfy chair, maybe put a few snags in the barbie or maybe get some refreshments and just sit back for a while and let's just hear some good news. Just, Just some comforting stuff. 
Because the days that we are living in will not be easy. And so listen very carefully this morning to Revelation 11, what the Spirit is saying to you and to me in this interlude about this story of this great battle between good and evil, the good guys and the bad guys. Now in this story, we read about two good guys. They're two heroes, two servants. Perhaps you picked that up. They're described in verse 4 as two olive trees and two lampstands. And that's significant. And it's beautifully depicted on this painting. Here, Revelation 11 picks up language and the imagery that you find in Zechariah chapter 4. And you need to understand that. Revelation is not just dreaming up new stuff. It picks up the images and the stories that you have in the Old Testament and brings them into our day. Because it just shows you that the God of history has a plan and he's working out that plan. So in Zechariah 4, we read about that and it's picked up here again in Revelation 11. And these two witnesses engage in a very powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit. These witnesses are going to produce fruit like olive trees, fruit in a time of spiritual dryness. And they're going to be like lamps, lampstands, light in a time of great darkness. And picking up this language from Zechariah chapter 4, we are reminded what Zechariah tells us in Zechariah 4 verse 6, that these two witnesses are not doing it on their own strength, not at all. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. So this will be a mighty ministry of God through these two witnesses who are being as fruitful in a dry time who are being light in a time of great darkness. Now we're told that they're going to prophesy for 1,260 days. Now that's a symbolic number. And that's a number that you're going to find both, many times, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You find it in the book of Daniel, in the book of 1 Kings, you find it in the book of Luke, and you find it in the book of James. So both in the Old and New Testaments. Now, 1,260 days equals 42 months, or times and times and a half, or three and a half years. Those three numbers that keep popping up in this prophecy, or in this chapter, are exactly the same number. This is the number of days that evil forces will trample on the church, that we read about in verse 2. For 1,260 days, or three and a half years, or 42 months, and it doesn't really matter the length of it, it's just saying that as long as, you know, evil is going to trample on the church, so long the church is going to continue to be faithful in their witness. As long as evil is going to try to become victor, the church is going to continue to... Bring forth the witness of Christ. So the number of days that the two witnesses will prophesy. The number symbolizes the time of visitation and tribulation and judgment. It's not going to be an easy time. And God's going to announce his judgment against all ungodly during this time. But during this whole time, as long as this judgment is going on against the evil in this world, the witnesses are going to continue to prophesy. Notice also that these two witnesses engage in a very powerful ministry. 
Their ministries are modeled upon, on, on, they're modeled very much upon the ministries of Moses and Elijah. Look at verse 5 and 6. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men will have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time that they are prophesying. Who does that remind you of? Elijah. It's picking up all that language out of the Old Testament. But read on. They'll have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Who does that remind you of? That reminds you of Moses. What a powerful supernatural witness. What is happening? What is happening here? Well, these two, these 42 months is a description of the time of the church. This is our time. This is the days in which you and I live today. The time between Jesus' first coming and the time of his second coming. Remember the last time I was with you back in the last Sunday or the first Sunday in July, how we discovered together that the purpose of the interlude is, was, was there to remind us <laughs> that you and I need to be faithful in our witness. We need to continue to share the testimony of Jesus and the Word of God wherever we can go. We are to prophesy. We are to reach out with the message of Christ to tell everyone around us that we're living in the last days. That was Revelation 10. Each one reach one. That's the challenge. You and I are to do that. In a time of spiritual dryness, we are to be fruitful. We need to be bearing fruit like all of trees. And in a time of, of great, great darkness, we need to let our light shine as lampstands. See, these two witnesses model to us what the church needs to be like in these last days. These are our days. These two witnesses are symbolic of faithful believers who take up the challenge to reach others with the gospel of Christ. And we are to reach out with a powerful ministry, not on our own strength, but we are to do that like Elijah did and like Moses did. And to be faithful, in, especially in the dark times in which they live. Like Elijah, who lived in very, very dark days and spiritual dryness, where he thought at a moment in his own life, and he even wanted to commit suicide, because he just thought, you know, God, I'm the only one that's here. That's how dry everything was. There was no spiritual vitality left in, in Israel. And yet he was faithful, and he ministered, and he prophesied. And like Moses, could you imagine, here these people were living in such darkness, they were, they were in bondage. <laughs> and God used Moses to take the people out of bondage into a place of freedom, a place of death to a place of life. And you and I are called, likewise, to minister in our day, like Elijah and Moses ministered in their day. Like lampstands, we are to produce light in a time of great darkness. Like all of trees, we are to produce fruit in a day of great spiritual dryness. And we're going to face opposition in these days. We'll be trampled on. Some of us will even be killed. Some of us will be martyred for the gospel. But we are not to let up. We are to be bold 
as witnesses, for the days are limited. One of the reasons why I want to walk through the book of Revelation with you in these days is because I believe very, very strongly that the church in the West today needs to hear this message. How many of you ever heard of Brother Andrew? This past week he died, 94 years of age. Man who had a powerful witness for the gospel. Brother Andrew, when he was 24 years of age, he had this, this, this call of God to bring the Bible, the, the Word of God, into places where the Bible was restricted of ever going to. And he would take the Bible into places like China and Russia and you know, behind the Iron Curtain. And he would he started his ministry called Open Doors. You've probably heard of that. In the last years of his life, now he's been ministering for 70 years before his death. In the last years of his life, he started no longer ministering about bringing Bibles into, into these foreign countries, even though that was part of the ministry of Open Doors. But his ministry was very much focused to the church because you know what he said? He said, the church in the West is a coward. The church in the West, they need to have guts. They need to have courage to be bold in their witness. And that's the message of Revelation 11. Like these two witnesses, we need to be standing up no matter what opposition that we might go through and to stand up for the truth of God's Word and to be faithful followers of Jesus. But remember, courage is something we can receive very quickly from God. We don't do this alone. God stands with us in this ministry, just like God stood with Elijah and God stood with Moses, because it's not by might, our might, not by power, not by our power, but it's by God's Spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. We are to be olive trees and lampstands, like Moses and Elijah, standing up against all opposition and seeing the mighty hand of God work in our world. But let's go back to the story. The story's not finished. At the heart of this story, the unbelievable thing happens. We're introduced the first time to the beast. The beast is the main opponent of God and the opponent of God's people in the last days. The beast is the Antichrist. We're going to learn more about him if you go through the rest of the book of Revelation. But right now we learn that the beast is demonic in character. He comes up from the place of the dead, from the abyss. And he's going to attack the two witnesses, overpower them, and kill them. Here, the good guys are killed by the bad guys. And the world joins in the celebration. Listen to how John describes this, how these... The bodies of the two witnesses are not given a proper burial. They're left to lie on the streets of the city like Sodom with all of its immorality, like the city of Egypt, like Egypt, the country of Egypt with all of its bondage. I mean, they're killed like the Lord Jesus was killed. The body not given a burial, but just hung, just lay there for everyone to see. For three and a half days, and here that number comes up again, three and a half, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation are going to gaze on their bodies. They're going to gloat over their deaths, 
And listen to this. They're going to celebrate it by sending each other's gifts. Here we have a very unholy Christmas. (laughs) Here the world, in opposition to God, they're going to start sharing gifts with one another and just throwing this party. Why? Because the testimony of Jesus has been stifled and shut down and these two witnesses killed. Evil will appear to have triumphed over good. And for people in John's day, this is exactly how they were feeling. Back in the first century, I mean, evil seemed to triumph over good. The bad guys were always winning over the good guys. Isn't that how it often feels like in our day as well? No matter how powerful our witness might be, evil seems to take the upper hand. We see youth walk away from the church, even from the faith. The sanctity of life and marriage polluted by abortion, sexual immorality, couples living together outside of marriage, divorce, and now we have this whole thing of gender dysphoria. I mean, all of this stuff that's happening. I mean, just think about in our society today that we set aside an entire month to celebrate Pride Month. A month that is devoted to the celebration of all kinds of sexual immorality. And all the while, we see churches all across the Western world closing their doors for lack of people. And bit by bit, the church and her witnesses are being attacked, overpowered, stifled, silenced, and even killed by the beast, by the Antichrist, by the spirit of the Antichrist. And many are gloating over the death of the church's witness in Australia and in other parts of the world. And they even dance on our streets as they throw a party. We see triumph of evil over good. What a story. But the story's not over. (laughs) The two witnesses... They come back to life. Like the dry bones of Ezekiel, the breath of life comes of God, enters into these, three, in these two witnesses, and they stood up on their feet. And it's no wonder that terror started to strike those who saw them. Evil did not have the final say. The story was not done, was not finished. The death and resurrection of these witnesses parallels the death and resurrection of Christ. After three and a half days, see the language? They came back to life, and they heard a voice say to them, Come up here. And like Christ, they ascended to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. What's the meaning of all of this? Well, remember that this is a story that we're told to encourage and comfort believers as they struggle with the sufferings in the last days before the return of Christ. And you and I, as faithful followers of Jesus, we are to remain on fire for Christ, not lukewarm in our faith. We are to be faithful to Jesus, faithful in our witness, and faithful to the Word of God. 
I mean, as we face hard times and persecution, I mean, it's very tempting for you and I to water down our testimony, to water down Christianity, to be less and less faithful, less faithful in our scripture reading, less faithful in our devotions, less faithful in our church attendance, less faithful in our testimony, less faithful in our caring of one another, less faithful in being the church that God would want us to be and to relax our commitment to Christ and His Word. When it appears around us that evil is triumphing over good, I mean, don't you at times feel like giving up? Giving up on Jesus? Giving up on the church? Giving up on the faith? But my friends, this story is told, and we need to hear this story. This story is told to call every Christian to a life of victory through suffering. We're called to a life of suffering. Jesus told us if anyone wants to come up after him and follow him, we must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. When Christ calls you to follow him, he bids you to follow him and die. To suffer and die, to lose your life. But just as death did not have the final say for Christ, so too dying for Christ is not the end. As Paul put it like this, he says, I want you to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings to become like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And my friends, that's a call of every follower of Jesus. That's a call on my life and that's a call that God has given you in your life. It's the life of victory through suffering. You will be persecuted. You will suffer. You will go through these trials, and after all of this suffering, you will hear the gracious words of our Lord Jesus. And he'll say to you, come up here. I mean, earlier this morning, you know, when we gathered for worship in that first song, I don't know if you caught those words, but I don't know if you just sing these words, but do you really believe them? I mean, those words are so powerful. Just listen to them again. I just took a picture of it, a little screenshot. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Do you believe those words? You sang them earlier. Do you believe them? No power of hell, no scheme of man. I mean, no matter what the beast will do, no matter what the spirit of the Antichrist will do, no matter how much the world around us will gloat over the demise of the Christian testimony, nothing can pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or he calls me home, until the time when he says to you and me, come up here, come up here, come up here. And you will rise from death to life and ascend to be with God forever. I mean, it might seem that the bad guys are winning, but in the end, the good guys win over the bad guys. That's the story of Revelation 11. Hercules wins over Hades. Luke wins over Darth Vader. David wins over Goliath. Jesus wins over Satan and death. And we will all share in victory over evil. In the words of the Apostle Peter, he says to us, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange is happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that 
you will be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Yes, if you and I are going to be faithful to Jesus and really stand up for truth, we might suffer and suffer bad, even death. (laughs) What joy will come to us and how we will be overjoyed when his glory is revealed, when you and I will be finding ourselves in the presence of God when he says to us, come up here, and we hear his voice and he calls us home and we're with him forever. (laughs) I mean, what joy will overcome our lives? And the point of the Bible that is making right in this chapter is really this. If you want to write anything down or if you want to just keep anything in your mind, is just keep this in your mind. The good wins no ultimate victory except through the grave of apparent defeat. The good wins no ultimate victory except out of the grave of apparent defeat. I mean, go back in history. You go back to the city of Jerusalem. There stood a cross. Some people call it Good Friday. We might want to consider it Bad Friday because there the sinless Son of God was crucified on a Roman cross. And he was destroyed. He was killed. He died. And it seemed that all was lost. That all that was good was defeated. But move three days later. The victory was won. The sun arose on Sunday. Good wins no ultimate victory. Except out of the grave of apparent defeat. The conclusion of that story, like the story of Jesus, and the conclusion of your and my story, if you and I are going to be faithful to Jesus and faithful to the Word of God, the conclusion of our story is that, like these two good guys, these two witnesses taken into heaven, we too will be called to be with God forever. They and we are like Jesus. We who believe. The result of their faithful witness, these two witnesses, I mean, and the result of that, and we, and we read that in this passage, I mean, we don't just keep being faithful just so that we can be finally called up to heaven, but notice what happens in this story in verse 13. We see the conversion of so many, many people. That very hour we're told that when they, con- they continued to suffer and they were killed and they were destroyed and they came back to life. I mean, and, and they were to be home with God forever. There were those who gave glory to God in heaven because we saw a massive amount of people come to faith. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When we're faithful in our testimony to the point of death, God will use our suffering and our testimony to bring many, many people to himself. With great assurance, the interlude is over and the vinyl trumpet is sounded. The seventh, angels, seventh angel sounded the trumpet, and the, final, the seventh and the final trumpet, and once the trumpet was sounded, heaven broke out into a song. Look at verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. In this story, between the, the struggle between good and evil, ultimately good wins. 
the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. My friends, the end is near. God's kingdom will be established forever and ever, but now the battle continues. The second woe has passed, and the third woe is about to come. In this great battle between good and evil, there are heroes and there are villains, good guys and bad guys. In this great battle of evil, what side are you on? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this wonderful encouragement from your word. That no matter how much we might suffer in this world and how much evil might seem to triumph, in the end, good will be vindicated and you will triumph over evil. And we will be called home to be with you. Lord, we look forward to that day, maybe the day of our death, or maybe the day when you come back and we hear those glorious words of you just say to us, come up here. Come and be with us in glory with all the faithful followers who have gone before you. Until that day, Lord, help us to be on the good side, to be on your side, to be faithful in our witness and to the testimony of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name.